You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Welcome to our fall teaching series. We're calling this series Citizens of Heaven. We just wrapped up a, a major milestone teaching through the entire letter of Ephesians over the summer. We like to take a Bible book or sometimes a longer Bible passage and just go through it each summer. And next summer, I'm super excited, we will be going through the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters 5 through 7. But what we're going to do this fall is we're actually going to get a head start on Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Even though it's only three chapters, these are long chapters, they are dense and rich with great teaching. And so what I want to do is I want to actually slow down and we're going to cover the very first section of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a section called the Beatitudes. It's a list of eight different blessings of Jesus. And as we go through each one of these, my prayer and hope for our church is it would show us closer what it looks like to be citizens of heaven. So the first question you might have is, what is a beatitude? That word beatitude is not necessarily a word we would use in our everyday language. It comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed, right? It's a list of eight blessings, and the word beatitude just means blessing. But blessing in a biblical sense is much deeper than the way that our culture uses blessed. We've talked about this before, how, you know, on Twitter or Instagram, people will use hashtag blessed, or they'll throw up a prayer hand emoji when they get a free coffee or they get a good parking spot. So some people have really taken this word blessed to mean happy. But it's actually much deeper than our idea of happiness. Happiness, you know, getting a free coffee or getting that parking spot might make us happy for a moment. But the way in which we are blessed by God is on another level. Uh, R. Kent Hughes says it like this. Contrary to popular opinion, blessed does not mean happy, even though some translations have rendered it this way. Happiness is a subjective state of feeling. But Jesus is not declaring how people feel. Rather, he is making an objective statement about what God thinks about them. And that's really a significant thing to note for us because, you know, our happiness comes and goes depending on our situations. But the way that God feels about us, that doesn't change. I think about Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul tells us that in Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And even if you're having a bad day, if you're in Christ, that's true of you. If you're having a bad week, if you're having a bad season, you're going through trials and suffering, which Jesus promised us, we would go through those times that we still have access to God's Favor. So here's my definition of a beatitude for the purpose of our teaching series. A beatitude is a promise of God's favor on his people. It's a promise of God's favor on his people. Now, that might lead us to feel happy when we're blessed by God. It might result in our happiness. And that's certainly a byproduct of God's blessing and his favor. But really, the focus is more on how God feels about you than how you feel about your situation. Max Licato uh, calls this the applause of heaven, where God is cheering you on and you as his, his chosen people, as a citizen of heaven, that you are favored 
by God. Another famous beatitude is Psalm 1. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, Psalm 1 begins with, Blessed is the man who does not walk with the wicked, does not stand with the sinners, does not sit with the scoffers, but they delight in the law of the Lord. And so it talks about, you know, the characteristics of someone who is blessed by God. And then it goes on in Psalm 1 to talk about that person's like a tree. They're planted by water. They, they prosper in their life and they grow good fruit in season. And so that, that's really what a beatitude is. It describes a kind of person. It describes the characteristics of a person. And then it goes on to pronounce as a promise God's hand of favor and God's blessing on that kind of person. And the world really, has its own unspoken list of beatitudes. If you were to look at, you know, the blessed person in the eyes of the world, the world would say blessed is the person who is popular. Blessed is the person who is rich and famous. Blessed is the person who gets the most likes on social media. Blessed is the one who is beautiful, Blessed is the one who is strong. Blessed is the one who is never wrong. Blessed is the one who gets the highest college degree. Those are the blessings in the eyes of the world. And what's so countercultural about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount is he takes our idea of the values of the world and he flips them upside down. And Jesus consistently taught this principle of the great reversal where in Matthew 20, verse 16, he says, the last will be first and the first will be last. And what does that mean, right? And the Beatitudes really operate in describing the blessed person in the citizen, uh, as a citizen of heaven, is going to be the last in the eyes of the world. We might say it like this. This is really Kind of, kind of our idea for the Beatitudes is the kingdom of heaven is filled with the last people you would expect to be there. The kingdom of heaven is filled. If you want to be a citizen of heaven, you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be beautiful. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be the best of the best. In fact, if you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ himself, who did he spend so much of his time with? He spent time with ordinary, untrained men and women. He spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. He spent time with the outsiders, with, with the people who, who he described as the sick. He said it's not the healthy ones who need a doctor, it's the sick. And so Jesus spends his time with the least of these, with the last, and he says those are actually the first in the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus also cares about you if you're not at the bottom of society. Jesus also spent time with wealthy people like uh, Zacchaeus or, or even religious people like Nicodemus. And, and yet there's something to be said about not seeking the approval of this world and, and not using the metrics of this world to measure a successful life. The good life in Jesus' eyes is actually a life of serving and self-giving love and sacrifice. And if you are last in the eyes of the world, maybe you're listening, you're watching this teaching, and you find yourself in a position of helplessness or hopelessness, the Beatitudes is actually good news for you. Because it means that even if you don't experience all the best things that the world has to offer, that you can still be first, and you can still be blessed as a citizen 
of heaven. And so these are these beatitudes are so countercultural. They're not they're not intuitive. They're going to shock us in so many ways. And yet we can learn from them to not just be blessed when we find ourselves in those positions, but actually to seek out these kinds of characteristics so that we can be blessed as citizens of heaven. So let's jump in to the very first beatitude in Matthew 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's our teaching text for today. That one verse, like I said, we're going to slow down over this series. And the Beatitudes work by first describing a characteristic. So the characteristic that we're looking at today is poor in spirit. We'll talk more about what that means in a moment. And then the, the blessing is really the, the specific pronouncement or promise of favor from God. So what is the blessing that the poor in spirit receive? It's theirs is the kingdom. And if you look at the first blessing and then you look at the, the last blessing, which has to do with being persecuted, Jesus begins and ends the Beatitudes with the very same pronouncement of blessing. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and that's really a literary device. It's, it's a structure that Jesus does called inclusio. It's called bookending. It's kind of these two points envelop the rest. And really what that teaches us is that Jesus is not talking to eight different groups of people. He's talking to one kind of person, the kingdom person, the citizen of heaven kind of person. And he's going to give these eight different characteristics that describe what it means to be a citizen of heaven. So what does it look like to be poor in spirit? Now, at a glance, what we might think is we, we might tend to think that it means to be you know, financial poverty, to be, to be financially poor. And certainly when Jesus gives another teaching, the Sermon on the Plain, that's a flat place versus the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Luke chapter 6, a lot of the same teachings there, but just, just, just tweaked and changed for the audience and the situation at hand there, is Luke, in Luke chapter 6, just says, blessed are the poor not blessed are the poor in spirit. So, so in the Sermon on the Plain, there is certainly merit to the idea, of, especially if you read Luke's gospel, there is a huge emphasis of God's favor towards those who, who find themselves in physical poverty, who are physically distressed. And yet, uh, Jesus also talks about the dangers of money, the dangers of possessions. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to tell us, you know, we can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You're going to hate one and love the other. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And yet, the, the, this, this idea that you know, there's inherent value in being poor, I, I just don't think you can make that argument across the board when you look at all of Scripture. Certainly, God cares for people who find themselves in oppression, people who find themselves you know, in poverty. And he's made provision, even in the Old Covenant. There was gleaning laws, and there was provision to be made to take care of those who couldn't take care of their own needs. And you know what Matthew is doing here is he's talking more about the spiritual element of to be poor in spirit. I mean, Jesus had wealthy women who supported his ministry. You know, uh, of course, Jesus told the rich young ruler, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. But he didn't tell every rich person 
to do that. The early church was made up of a variety, a, a mixed bag of social classes. You had very rich people like Barnabas who owned, he was a wealthy landowner, and then you had very poor people as well. And, and so all of this idea that, that your economic status either gives you permission or entrance into the kingdom of heaven or not, I just don't think you can make that case. So I don't think Jesus is talking about financial poverty, especially when he says poor in Spirit. So what does that mean? Poor in spirit. Other people have made the case that, you know, this is idea of poor self-image or poor self-worth. It's kind of this idea of self-loathing and, you know, I'm the scum of the earth and you think, you think really badly of yourself. You treat yourself poorly. You think of yourself poorly. You talk about yourself poorly. And the reality is, I don't think that's what Jesus is going for either. In fact, a proper understanding of the gospel should not lead us to have horrible identity, you know, an identity crisis or horrible self-worth. It should lead us to be very secure in our identity as a son or a daughter of the king. Uh, Think about John 3.16, God so loved the world. And the gospel is really a love story. Even though we are not worth it, God counted us worthy. Even though we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn our place in the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the king laid down his life for us and he views you as so valuable. And so I don't think that's what Jesus is going for. He's not telling us we should think poorly of ourselves necessarily. I think, in fact, a better way to describe what poor in spirit means is it means spiritual bankruptcy. Look at what D.A. Carson says. To be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. It confesses one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence on him. So, so really, it's that idea of utter dependence on God. Not necessarily, you know, that, that you know, forevermore you think you're the scum of the earth, but you understand, spiritually speaking, that we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God that we are by nature children of wrath. We were deserving of death. And the word poor that Jesus uses here is the Greek word tokos. Tokos means begging poor, helpless, destitute, or powerless. It actually comes from a root word, which means to to crouch or to to lie down. And, And just picture that in your mind. Someone who's on the street, maybe you've you, you've seen you know, people with signs on the street, and maybe you've given money at times in the past, or maybe you've avoided eye contact. I don't know what you do in those situations, but there are some times where you see someone who is so incredibly in need and destitute that they are literally just bowing down, crouching, sprawling out, just needing someone to give them food, needing someone to give them money. In Luke 21, uh, Luke uses a different word when Jesus teaches about uh, the widow's might. Do you remember that? The, the, the poor widow who gave her last two copper coins. Uh, and he uses the word pinikros, which is not the word tokos, like where you, that Jesus uses here in the Sermon on the Mount. Pinikros means that, that at least she has two copper coins, right? So there's even levels of poverty spoken about in Scripture. But the kind of poverty here, it's a begging poor. It's an on-your-face kind of poor. And it's this idea that spiritually speaking, we are saved by God's grace. And there's nothing we could do of our own righteousness, of our own goodness, even if we are blessed you know, in the eyes of the world, even if you know, we are successful in the eyes of the world, we're high and mighty in the eyes of the world. That doesn't make us high and mighty in the eyes of God. It's actually the poor in spirit who recognize their need of God's mercy that actually receive 
the mercy of God. It makes me think of Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea from the book of Revelation. Uh, in Laodicea, people were wealthy. You know, people had the physical wealth, and that led them to have this almost prosperity mindset where they felt like you know, God was blessing them with the things of this world. So obviously, they would be blessed with the things in the kingdom of heaven. But look at the rebuke to the church in Laodicea from Revelation 3.17. Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And that is the danger when we have you know, the, the, the blessings of this world is we forget that we need a Savior. We forget, we think that we've kind of earned you know, our place, that there's some kind of cosmic karma and we must be favored by God. But what we neglect to realize is that no matter how good your life is, you need a Savior. You need someone to save you from your sins. There's nothing that you could do to ever earn your way to God. It makes me think about the old hymn, Rock of Ages. I just want to read the lyrics to you from this hymn, Rock of Ages. It's really based on this idea of Revelation chapter 3, which says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the, thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's a hymn where people would be singing, proclaiming their spiritual poverty. That without God, we would be nothing. We need God to clothe us in his righteousness. We need him to wash our sins away. We need him to, to seat us in heaven with Christ in the heavenly places. And so for you today, I would just say, say this to you. That's not meant, you know, all this talk about spiritual poverty and our own sinfulness. That's meant to bring us to the place where we can actually experience the grace of God. And the good news of the gospel is, is not just that God wants to point the finger at you and tell you how sinful you are. It's that God wants to pay the penalty for your sins. God wants to wash you. He wants to save you. And God loves you because of who he is, not because of anything that you bring to the table, not because of anything you do to earn his favor. God loves you because it's in his character and his nature to love you because he's a good and loving father. And so today can be the day that you say yes to the forgiveness that God offers you. Today can be this day of salvation for you. And I would encourage you and challenge you today to cry out to God for mercy and to ask God to forgive your sins and to lead your life. Christ Jesus, he's the son of God. And he died on the cross for the sins of the world. And he rose back to life three days later as a victory over sin and over death. And now in Revelation chapter 3, it says that he stands at the door and knocks. He's asking for the church to let him in. But they're too busy with their frivolities. They're too busy with their luxuries. They're too busy with the things of this world that they can't see their need of a savior. And so today can be the day where Jesus is knocking on the door of your life and he's asking you to let him in. And you can just today pray a prayer and say, yes, yes, I need a savior. God, would you forgive me? Would you, would you wash me? And you can even sign up 
to get baptized. We just at Church in the Park had the opportunity to baptize a dozen people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And baptism is this, this, this ceremony where people declare their face, where they say, I need a Savior, and they're washed, and their sins are washed away. And it's a beautiful, beautiful ceremony of someone committing their life to Jesus. And if that's you, you can sign up to get baptized, and we would love to walk alongside you in making that step. You can go to hillcityboise.org baptism. But here's really the main point for our teaching text today. Our main point for you is that you'll never experience the fullness of God if you are full of yourself. You'll never experience the fullness of God. That's another phrase we get from Ephesians where Paul prays that the church would be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's a huge prayer. And I want to experience more fullness of God. I want to experience more of the Holy Spirit's presence in my life. But the reality is, if you are so full of yourself or full of the world or full of distractions, then you're not going to recognize your need of God and you'll never be filled with the fullness of God to the measure that you might experience. Eugene Peterson in Matthew 5.3, the message paraphrase, this is how he puts it, and I think it really helps us get at the main idea. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. And he says, with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. And that's really what what this poor in spirit, what Jesus is getting at. For there to be less of us, for us to decrease so that God's presence in our lives can increase. See, we begin so often after we're saved to experience the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And that is such a good thing where we experience uh, more and more increasingly freedom from sin, freedom from temptation. We, We... start to display the fruit of the Spirit. Our character traits start to change. We begin to even do good works. We're doing good things. We're generous. We're we're, we're giving money away. We're we're helping people. We're serving. And what can happen happen from time to time is we can take the righteousness of Christ that we are clothed with, and we can start to share the credit with Jesus. We can start to look at at our our, clothed in righteousness and say, I look pretty good in this. I did pretty good today, right? We pat ourselves on the backs and we start to look at the righteousness of Christ as self-righteousness. And that's where we go wrong. We stop giving God the glory for what the work he is doing in our lives and we begin to take the credit for ourselves. And we can not be poor in spirit. Instead of being spiritually poor, we can be spiritually wealthy. To be spiritually wealthy is really displayed by the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee was, you know, a very religious person. And Jesus tells this story about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go into the place of worship to pray. And first of all, the Pharisee, he prays. And I want you to, to see his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's publicly shaming this guy. And then he says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. And so the problem with the Pharisee is he's spiritually wealthy. He, he, he's good, but he knows just how good he is and he can't look past his own goodness. He gets fixated on it. And the problem isn't the fact that he's doing these good things. I mean, he, he's giving money away, he's fasting, he's praying, he's doing all the right actions. The problem is that he's giving himself the credit. He's looking for his identity and his worth in the good things that he produces, not the goodness of God that he has received. He's spiritually wealthy. And for so many of us, we look at that as like a hyperbole, like, well, I'm not, 
I, I'm not that crazy. You know, I, I'd never publicly pray like that and shame someone. And so may, maybe we're not spiritually wealthy. Maybe what we experience is being spiritually middle class. You know, we don't have to be the best of the best, but, but God, please don't let me be the worst. Please don't let me be the last. And if the spiritually wealthy person only sees their own goodness, the spiritually middle class is constantly looking at other people's badness and saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. I mean, I think about one of the most common reasons that I hear non-Christians say that they, they don't need God is they say things like, well, at least I'm not a murderer or at least I'm not this bad. And they are always comparing themselves to someone else's badness. And if you want to, you're always going to be able to find someone who is worse than you. But that doesn't actually get you. Spiritually middle class doesn't actually get you to the place where you're crying out to God and you know your need of God. In fact, what we need is not to be spiritually wealthy. It's not to be spiritually middle class. It's to be spiritually poor like the tax collector. Look at the simple prayer of the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's his prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He, he's not playing the comparison game. He's not looking at, at the people who are better than him or the people who are worse than him. And that's really the problem uh, of being spiritually wealthy or spiritually middle class. To, to be poor in spirit is to know your own sinfulness, your own brokenness, and know that you need a Savior. Know that you need God's mercy. And the reality is we are saved by God's mercy, but we're also sustained by God's mercy. And so that's why I believe that being poor in spirit is something that can serve us throughout our entire lives as a citizen of heaven. I think about the warning that Moses gave in Deuteronomy to the Israelites. See, the Israelites had just come out of generations of slavery, just, just heartbreaking injustice done to the people of Israel when they're in Egypt in slavery, and they cried out to God in Egypt for deliverance. And God sent the deliverer. He sent Moses, and he brought them out of the land. And then now, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So they've been crying out to God. They've gone from crying out to God in slavery to crying out to God in the wilderness. But God is bringing them somewhere good. He's, God is bringing them to a place of blessing. It's called the promised land. It's been, gener it's been hundreds of years in the making, and God is finally bringing his people into a land of milk and honey, a land of plenty, a land of bounty, a, a land of goodness. And yet Moses speaks this, this, this warning over the people. He says, don't get too caught up in the material blessings. And this is really a blessing I want us to take very seriously as a church I know we're, we're not, maybe not coming out of yet, but we've been in you know, over a year and a half now of pandemic, uh, of trials, of cultural turmoil. We've been in a place of uh, renovation, you know, renovating our building. And I think it's going to be so easy when we are brought out of this place. And I don't know when it'll be, but I believe God will bring us out of this place. Certainly with the building renovation, near the end of this year, God's going to bring us to a place where we have a beautifully furnished and renovated building. With the pandemic, with, with all these issues, I believe God is going to bring us out of these issues. And when we get to that place, that's when we need to be careful to not lose this idea of being poor in spirit. Listen to the warning of Moses in Deuteronomy 8. He says, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. 
that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. That's a warning. That is a fierce warning from Moses, the leader of the Israelites. He's saying, listen, you're going to go into the promised land and the temptation is going to be after, after a few years, you're, you're, you're drinking the milk, you're eating the honey, you're having the grapes, you're living the life. You're going to say, I'm, do, I'm doing pretty well for myself. I'm taking the, you're, going to begin, you're going to be tempted to take the credit for the position that you hold and you're going to forget that it's actually God and his mercy that got you here. It's God and his covenant promise that actually caused him to, to, to bring you into the promised land. And when that happens, and when you're all high and mighty, that prosperity, here, here's a progression, prosperity will lead you to pride. And that pride is you're going to give yourself credit and you're going to go after other gods. And when you go after other gods, whether it's, you know, for them, like actual pagan gods or for us, you know, the idols of the world and the worldliness, the, the prosperity leads to pride and pride leads you to perish. And that is a solemn warning for us to continue to seek after Jesus and to cry out for the mercy of God. So how can we actually stay poor in spirit when things are good and when things are bad in our lives? I have three practices for us today. The first practice is keep crying out to God. Keep crying out to God. That's the problem, right? The, the, the people cried out to God in slavery. They cried out to God in the wilderness. And, and there were times where they stopped crying out to God. We cry out to God in prayer. So I would ask you this question, where do you need God to move in your life or in this world? And maybe you're at a place where you feel like you're, you're just, your situation is making you poor in spirit. It's okay during times like this, season like, like this, to pray prayers of petition. That's asking God for things for yourself and just being vulnerable and saying, God, I need help in my marriage. I need help in my finances. I need help in my parenting. I need help because I have loved ones who are dying. I need help with my health, right? My health is failing me. Whatever those things are, if you are at a place where you're just by your situation, poor in spirit, cry out to God with those petitions and, and, and don't grow weary in crying out to God. So sometimes we pray a few times, we pray a few weeks, and then we kind of give up because nothing happened. Be like the persistent widow. Keep praying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, and, and trust that God is growing your dependence on him as you do so. And if you're at a place where maybe things are going well for you, I'll say keep crying out for God then. And maybe those are the times where you focus less on petitions. It's still important to, to cover your family and yourself in prayer, but those are the times you focus on intercession that's, that's when you're praying for someone else. You're praying for the issues in this world. You're praying for Afghanistan. You're praying for, for, uh, against COVID. You're praying against racial injustice. You're, you're lifting up the, the issues in the world. You're lifting up your, your pastors and leaders. You're lifting up others, and you become a prayer warrior, and that allows you to continue to be dependent on God, and you are the one who is helping usher in, by your prayers, revival in our city and revival in our time. The second practice that we can do to stay poor in spirit is to pray on your knees, literally to pray on your knees. I, I remember that, that word tokos, the word poor that Jesus uses. The root word means to bow down or to crouch. And what I've found is that the posture of your body affects the posture 
of your heart. And I know not everyone can, can do this, even physically, right, to be able to get down in, in that position on the ground. But I would say if you are able, not that every prayer has to be on your knees, but I would say consistently, frequently, if you find yourself needing to be humbled before the Lord, then actually humble your body. Actually get on your knees. And I have been so impacted by the times where I am on my knees praying and God brings me to a place of humility. He brings me to a place of poor in spirit and I can actually showcase my dependence on him in prayer. And then the third practice is to really just remember your desperate need for God. This is more of something in your memory to be thinking about and dwelling on. And I can just be honest with you, this week that I've been writing this message on poor in spirit has been a week where it's been rough, to be honest. Uh, the night that I, be, uh, the day be, that I began writing this sermon, uh, one of my daughters was sick and I was up till 3 a.m. and I only got a handful of hours of sleep. Later on in the week, another one of my daughters got sick. And so you know what it's like when you have little kids at home and they're sick. I've been building a wall at my house and so I've been you know, staying up late and doing lots of extra work on that. With our renovation here at the building, you know, one of the workers accidentally drilled a screw through a geothermal pipe and it was flooding in the basement and there's been setbacks and I've you know, had all these bills coming in and I, I was driving home from the office one of the days this week and I just had this sense, God, I can't do this without you. I can't, I can't heal my kids. I can't, you know, pay the bills without you. I can't, you know, finish the construction project. It was all of these things. And in these times, it's so important to remember our desperate need of God. Not just when you're having a rough week, though. Not just when you're having a rough week, when you're having a good week. You don't have to wait for things to go wrong to remember your need of God. This is why I believe Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a meal of remembrance. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And it's, it, it's remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf and in your place. His body that was broken and his blood that was poured out for you. And we remember that place of always needing to go after the mercy of God and receive the mercy of God. And so today or this week, whether you're you know, attending in person right now or not, would you take the Lord's Supper? And would you humble yourself at the foot of the cross? And as you empty yourself of your pride, of your self-righteousness, would you be filled with all the fullness of God? Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.